18 minutes to 11, and this text says, please don't say bouquet when you mean bouquet. It is a French word that the English know how to pronounce, but New Zealanders and Australians don't. That's unsigned. Uh, Colin Peacock, you want to tell me off too? No, no, no. You pronounce it whichever way you want. The language is an evolving thing, and uh, I'm certainly not going to get judgy on stuff like that. Well, last time we spoke on Midweek Media Watch, we talked about the death of Princess Diana 25 years ago and the media frenzy that that caused. And now we have another royal death dominating the news. And we played right into your hands tonight, didn't we? We didn't disappoint you on Lately. Oh, indeed, with Paul Thomas, the florist. Yeah, that was quite... I tuned in halfway through his interview and he just started at the very moment where he started talking about the corgis running around his ankles and... I did roll my eyes a little, but um, look, that's that's just me. But um, some You've people got no heart. Well, no, I, I do. I certainly do. I don't, I'm not going to be that guy that says this uh, this shouldn't be covered. But yeah, it's certainly the intensity of it now is um, is certainly becoming a bit of an issue. Uh, you had personal experience of this in the UK, didn't you? Well, I, I did in a, in a way because I worked at um, BBC World TV. This is stretching all the way back to the late 90s. And we used to have to rehearse the Queen Mother's death every six months because if she died at night time, we were it because uh, the domestic TV was off the air in, in Britain uh, and back in those days. And, yeah, there was a locked cabinet, I remember, and I, I think I was the one with the key for quite a while. They had 27 separate uh, films about the life of the Queen, and we had to keep them up to date, all about the Queen Mother, beg your pardon. And, yeah, we had to keep these endlessly re-edited because as she grew older, she kept outliving the people who were in uh, in these films paying tribute to her. And there was a very elaborate uh, plan for when she died, I think several days' worth of just... Um, uh, memorial type uh, music and programming. Commercial broadcasters weren't going to play any advertising for I think five to six days. And when Diana died before that, a few years before in 1997, as, as we spoke about last time, uh, they kind of realised that this plan was all a bit too much and all the cards went up in the air. And actually looking back to when uh, Prince Philip died, um, at that time, I, I went back and had a look at some of this. There were newspaper reports uh, about viewers switching off the TV, and actually um, The Guardian reported the BBC had so many complaints that it opened a, a dedicated form on its website uh, for people to complain. So perhaps him uh, being, I, I don't know, a little less popular than the Queen, but I guess that was also a time when uh, COVID was rife and uh, the public mood would have been a bit different. And, you know, you certainly didn't have those spontaneous scenes of public outdoor mourning that we've seen in the UK, which um, make it such a different story. Uh, Colin, it seems like uh, every person in the New Zealand news media is standing in front of Buckingham Palace or in Scotland or somewhere. Um, is it paying off that they've all gone there? Because, you know, you've got the the death and then the, the mourning and the ceremonials that come after that. There's also a funeral some days down the track. So the, there's a whole sort of cadence to this event that does go over almost a fortnight. And a similar thing happened with Diana. And now that I think back to it, there was the death and all the, you know, all the extraordinary outpouring and shock and so on that, of course, the, the ceremonials for the funeral that had to be planned pretty quickly. Uh, and that became a huge media event. I mean, there were reporters. I remember the BBC doing reporters down the funeral trail every few hundred yards. I mean, it was a massive, massive undertaking. So all of this, all the stuff that's been planned, of course, in advance for the Queen, as we've he heard so much about Operation London Bridge and so on. Uh, now that's been overlaid with, I guess, all the public scenes that we're seeing. Patrick Gower was in Scotland on last night's, uh, Tuesday night's uh, coverage for News Hub. I think he called it the 
gridlock of grief, you know, just so many people all wanting to get close to it. You could almost describe the media coverage like that when it's all <laughs> backed up with so much of it. But yeah, News Hub was, was, was interesting. Last night, it had reporters in Scotland, London, and even in Belfast, and all reporters from here, Alice Wilkins, Patrick Gower, and I think Samantha Hayes was in London, uh, the Europe correspondent, of course, already there. So, I mean, that's, that's just one network. And it was also interesting to me that uh, TV Channel 3, now owned by Discovery, a kind of U.S. global uh, mega corporate, that was doing more live coverage than our state-owned networks, TVNZ, RNZ, that you might expect to have carried things like the proclamation and ascension ceremony. On That was on Saturday morning. That was live on 3. And they also, on the Friday night, carried that first speech live by King Charles, as, as he is now, of course, in that first church service. And they weren't live on, on TVNZ or RNZ either. So, yeah, they're really throwing a whole lot at it. And another network that has is Today FM. They sent um, Tova O'Brien to uh, the UK. They're advertising that she's there all week. Uh, she was in Scotland on Monday and loads more in her program than on, say, Morning Report, for example, who have Corin Dan uh, there for RNZ. And Today FM was promoting this very heavily uh, in trailers like this one with the voice of Paul Henry. Tova from Holyrood House, Edinburgh, as the Queen makes her final journey with Generate, the KiwiSaver specialists on Today FM. Yeah, so uh, the message is like that. What is that music? Well, that's everything but the girl, I think, Tracy Thorne. No, I know that, but does that actually go with the promo? Uh, well, I guess so. We miss you, like the desert miss the rain. We miss the. Oh, right. I, I, I guess that's it. But um, I mean, the sponsor of the show got a plug there. Um, that particular uh, KiwiSaver provider. Uh, but there, there were loads of messages like that with Paul Henry's voice. You will always remember where you were the day Queen Elizabeth died. And then there's so many of them. They did this a bit when Tover O'Brien went to Ukraine. They had these Paul Henry voiceovers slotted in. You know, Vladimir Zelensky exclusive. And it, it's all a bit much and doesn't quite fit the tone. I think. Of you know the the actual event, but yeah, they're clearly determined to uh, get the most out of having sent uh, Tova O'Brien there with all the others, as as you mentioned, heaps and heaps of New Zealand reporters there for the event. Talking about pronunciation, uh, Corin Dan saying "mall" instead of "mel." Causing... <laughs> around a few people. Actually, on that, um, May Heron for TVNZ, uh, this feels awfully mean to say this, but she was on uh, live on TVNZ's Q&A show that would have been on Sunday morning talking to Jack Tame, and several times where she was referring to a sort of pomp and circumstance and, and the, the pomp on display, she actually used the word pomposity, which is not quite the same thing. Um, yeah, but more of a judgment call, I think, to refer to pomposity. But um, yeah, I think, that, but you know, given that people take this so seriously, this whole event and the respect for the Queen, um, not surprising that some listeners are indeed calling out what they see as uh, below par pronunciation or, you know, getting words wrong. Pomposity and circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it goes together, but anyhow. Right. Uh, it's more than the royal family just being box office, though, isn't it? The Queen is our head of state, and more than that, she did hold a special place in the hearts of many. Yeah, well, that's evident, and so that's why I was saying earlier, I don't want to be you know, that guy that says this isn't an event that, that should be marked or doesn't deserve to have the reporters there. And now that I come to think of it, another reason for sending your own reporters halfway around the world is if you actually need 
a reporter to be on your 6pm news or for key events like the funeral or the ceremonies, uh, you can't guarantee that you'll have them if you're trying to use and borrow other ones. So that's another reason that you'd have to send um, people out. But um, look, at some of the coverage, even though there's lots of it, and it, you know, as you said, people do have genuine and strong feelings about this and about the Queen and the monarchy and, and what this moment represents. It doesn't. It hasn't all been sort of super solemn. So in the mix with preparations for the funeral, there's been stuff that hasn't been so super solemn. And just to pick one, uh, Wallace Chapman on uh, the panel on RNZ National, on Tuesday he went through a playlist uh, that Prince Charles had picked a few years back for a hospital radio charity. Uh, he had a few big um, disco hits on it with the likes of uh, Donna Summer. Yeah, he's obviously a fan of um, strong female artists yeah. over the years. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve, happy with happy with those choices. The other one was given up, given in by the three degrees. Uh, Edith Piaf's "Love You on Rose." Well, I mean, I mean, I, I, I was expecting something uh, from you know the artist formerly known as Prince, obviously, yeah. but we're not getting any of that. There's no grime in there. There's no drum and bass. There's no death metal. He's yeah, obviously been exactly. very careful to be quite populist. But I, I want to know what does he really rock out exactly. to? What's his jams? And we will never ever know. Yeah. <laughs> the artist formerly known as Prince. Yeah, I've heard that pun a few times, but that wasn't the first time I'd heard it. But, um, I mean, isn't he 75 years? It's very unlikely to be into grime, let alone <laughs> death metal. Right. Thinking of the longer term, though, how do you think that the media relationship with the new king and his family is going to evolve? Yeah, in a way, in? that's getting ahead of ourselves. However, I think it is an interesting question because when, when you think about it, his partner, his siblings, his kids, they've all had huge exposure and criticism in the media, a lot of intrusions into their privacy, particularly from uh, tabloid media. Um, and I was forced to think about that by listening to this new podcast. Do you remember um, week before last, Emily Maitlis, a former BBC uh, heavyweight, did a big lecture where she criticised the political interference in the BBC. And in part, that was to generate um, a bit of publicity for this new podcast she's doing called The News Agents. And in that, where they, they addressed that question of where now for the monarchy and the, and the media, and journalist Ash Sarker, one of their guests on the show, made a point I hadn't really thought about, but said things are much harder for Prince Charles because so much about him, even eye-watering details of his personal life, have been revealed by the media already. He was unfortunate enough to come of age just at the time that the tabloids were really exploding. So every detail of his romantic life has been splashed all over the papers. That's not something that any previous monarch has ever had to contend with. Least of all, the monarch that he's succeeding, his mother. Colin, it's Tawiki o Te Reo Māori, and among the special TV programmes on Tuesday night, there was a doco on newsreader Mike McRoberts' personal Te Reo journey. Yes, uh, this was called uh, Kia ora, Good Evening, uh, the way that Mike McRoberts opens up three news every night. And this showed him um, a very personal and very actually very emotional at times, confronting the fact that he uh, didn't have te reo, wanting to rediscover this and also a kind of identity journey as well. So we saw all these scenes. He started learning the language uh, with uh, his own whanau and also with colleagues. We saw him giving a, a mihi at um, his former high school when he was getting a bit more confident, then getting a tamoko as well, and then going to do whaikorero at um, his marae up near Wairoa. Uh, he also confronted this um, this notion of, of whakamā and the shame or embarrassment or, or however it's best translated 
when learning it, the fear that you're not quite good enough and having to overcome that. Um, it even included this interesting bit where he spoke about how not having uh, Te Reo fluency kind of affected him as a young journalist. I remember as a 17-year-old doing an audition for Radio New Zealand, the one comment that came back was that I needed to improve on my Māori. I felt humiliated and ashamed about not knowing the language. I made a point of calling myself a journalist who was Māori, not a Māori journalist, because then I, I wasn't expected to know the language, to know tikanga. Yeah, it made me think about that because I never really thought about the expectation that if you were a Māori journalist, uh, that people would have expectations of you um, that wouldn't be uh, placed upon others. Well, obviously the, the documentary was centred on him, but was it all about him or about Tareo and the learning of the language? Yeah, it was a bit of both, which is a good thing. And he was aware of the irony. In fact, he did an interview on the AM show where it was put to him, look, you're supposed to just do the news and not show emotion. Your personal feelings and background shouldn't be part of it. And yet this is the very much the reverse. And I, am, I was a bit wary about it. This is funded from the public purse, I think over $230,000. Um, from New Zealand on air and to Mangai Pahu, the Māori Broadcast Funding Agency. So I'm a bit suspicious sometimes of docos that are bolted onto the personality of the stars of those networks, like a bit like the Patrick Gower documentaries. Sometimes journalists ought to tell the stories of other people, not necessarily themselves. But this really did put it in the context of not just him, but his, his whanau, his um, whakapapa in, in Wairua, growing up um, with his Pākehā mother, Māori father, and that experience in Christchurch was interesting. All his parents, his siblings and kids that appeared uh, in, in the uh, film had um, interesting things to say. So I would say it's it's very accessible, easy to watch. And the, the odd thing was that at exactly the same time on TV1, there was a program called Speak No Māori uh, about the, the history of the suppression of te reo, and that was time to mark the 50th anniversary of the petition being presented to Parliament back in 1972, it's a bit of a bit of a shame that exactly 8:40 p.m. on both main TV channels, these documentaries traversing similar territory were screened. And just last week, uh, Willie Jackson, the Minister of Broadcasting, he, he released a Māori broadcasting strategy, which was to put more Māori and Te Reo programmes on in mainstream media as well. So, do you think this would have hit the mark? With him? Well, I guess he'd be pleased to see those programs on in mainstream, but he actually featured in Kyoto in Good Evening and not in a great way because Mike McRobert said at the start, quite emotional, he was extremely hurt by a Sunday news column Willie Jackson had written about him, where he'd described him and a couple of other um, sort of known journalists from, from television as Māori faces in the media, but not genuinely Māori journalists. Later in the program, Willie Jackson actually read out the offending passage from that column straight down the camera, and then the pair of them chatted about it uh, and kind of buried the hatchet like this. In your case, you, you did something about it. I mihi to him for his kaha ki te kōkiri te kaupapa, rawe, rawe tana mahi uh, uh, ki te tautoko tātou tiwi Māori. His challenge was for me to be more of an advocate for Māori and... Yeah, it's a good challenge. Um, I want to do that. I mean, all good if that is what Mike wants. It did feel a bit strange, though, to have a Minister of Broadcasting telling uh, a prominent media figure who he'd criticised in the past, long before he was a minister, you know, that, that he ought to be an advocate for Māori. That, that felt a bit, a bit odd. Did, did the programme address the backlash against or the resistance to uh, more te reo in the media? 
It did a little bit. And Mike had a chat with uh, Orini Kaipara, who's um, a News Hub journalist. She's got the Mokokai, and she gets a lot of abuse online, uh, partly because of that, but also just the sort of stuff that anyone who's speaking a bit of te reo on the media gets from time to time. We know we even get some of it here at RNZ. I mean, there are some people out there that still feel alienated by hearing it on air. And that cabinet strategy that the government's approved, uh, Willie Jackson has said he wants to see more across the media, more te reo, more Māori content on both. So, you know, that will that will uh, get some of those people's backs up. And one who's said stuff about this in the media last week, News Talk ZB's Kate Hawksby, uh, she said the strategy was wrong, priorities are wrong, and she wound up her show last week like this. Just watch that one. Just Just keep it in your back pocket. And when it does come around next year... And suddenly there's largely te reo being spoken at you on every orifice of every media outlet. Then you'll just remember back to this moment where I told you about it in advance. Oh, kia ora, Kate. Mm, not a fan. That's us, Colin. Thank you very much. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Sure, look forward to it.